We're the branch. He's the vine. It's all about God being pleased, which he can't be pleased with anything but himself. And that's the only thing that makes sense. What, what are we? Dust? We're made from dust. But we're meant to be filled with the presence of God. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, it is good to come into the house of the Lord. It is good to exalt your name. It is good to see you as your Word declares you to be a God of glory, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of righteousness. Lord, all your ways are right. Shall not the God of all the earth do what's right, the prophet declared. We acknowledge right now that you always do right. You always have our highest good in view. We deserve punishment, all of us. And yet you have chosen to pour out your love through the sacrifice of your son for those whom you have determined to give grace. We don't deserve it. No one deserves a second chance. That is the mercy of God. And so I acknowledge with so many brothers down through history that there is one right way, one way to see salvation from where it comes, and that is through the Holy Spirit, your word that declares clearly, as many as you determined would come to eternal life. I thank you, Lord, for the plan that we're going to look at in just a few minutes. I give you the praise for a plan that is inconceivable to all of us, just like all your word declares you to be. I ask your glory and your praise as we consider these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Episode 64, titled, And the Two Shall Be One. I'm going to be using assorted scriptures again as we look at this topic, and the two shall be one. The big question that sometimes theologians love to ask, and all people, you know, when facing life's decisions or problems and trials, the things, the issues that arise in life, what's it all about? Why are we all here? Why is life so filled with trouble and woe, and why is this happening? And in a negative sense, there's so many good things that happen. Marriage, birth, you know, just blessings without number, and the way God supplies everything we need. We mess it up, but uh, apart from men messing it up, it's so much, there's so much good. But still, why? Why death in the world, disease, wars, anger, divisions? I mean, just endless. Why? Well, let me in these few minutes attempt to open the window to the light of God's holy word so that we might see that there actually is a grand purpose for a world in pain. Let us start at the beginning. That is where God starts in Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. 
In the beginning, God. Let us imagine for a moment life, not created life as we we now know the animal kingdom, humanity, uh, everything that exists on this planet, um, but life before any creation. And I'm actually going to use verses that at first won't seem to be taking us to that place, but then I'll get there fairly quickly. So for this thought, I will quote from 2 Timothy 1, 1 and 2. I could use any of the books of the New Testament uh, letters because we can, in one arrangement of the words or another, find the ideas that are, are, are stated when the, the letters are open. Quote from 2 Timothy 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me just make some quick points here from what was just said. One, how does he start? First, Paul himself as a person, and second, as an apostle, is of Christ Jesus. God comes first. He has first place. Two, everything is by the will of God. Three, according to the promise of life. And where is the life? In Christ Jesus. Four, grace, which is something for nothing. Mercy is something not deserved, but given because of something not deserved. And peace, which is a state of no conflict, or where two sides get along perfectly. Why is he stating this? Five, from God the Father. From God the Father. Eternally, before creation and all the grief and conflicts that creation has caused when it fell into sin, there was peace, perfection, love, unity, union, and every good thing that we could possibly think of or imagine from God the Father. That's right. That's how he's bringing this to a close. From God the Father. And then six, and Christ Jesus, who is the eternal Son. So where is all this goodness and perfection coming from God the Father and God the Son? You know, where there is an eternal Father, there is an eternal Son. Always. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. See, the Father is eternal. This didn't happen in time. The Son didn't become the Son in time. The Son has always been the Son, the Eternal Son, in an eternal state, just as the Father has always been the Eternal Father, as stated in Isaiah chapter 9. Eternal Father, not eternal in time. Very important point, because everything that's coming from God here is coming from in the beginning. God, the beginning, meaning the beginning of creation. Before that, it was just no time. Time was created for us, but Outside of time is God. That's where he exists in eternity. He doesn't have beginning of days or end of life. He's in an eternal state. Always has been. Always will be. 
Before there was ever a need for peace in the creation, there was the peace found in God the Father and God the Son. Even more than this, according to Ephesians 1.10, concerning God the Father, we read beginning in verse 3, uh, Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then all that follows, leading right up to verse 10, it's regarding his plan of the fullness of the times to bring all things together in Christ. So then in verse 10, so then as the Father is observed, we see God the Father giving God the Son the first place in all things. Then we move to verses 15 to 20, where we we see God the Son giving himself to fulfill the Father's will. So that whether creating, sustaining, dying for, and saving, all things are created by and through the Son. Verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Why? Verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. End quote. So that at the end, the Son sacrifices everything for the Father, And the the Father planned all things to glorify God the Son. That's a mouthful, I realize. But in the end, it's a very simple equation. In the beginning, God. Before creation, God. Eternally, God. And God for God. God the Father for for everything for the Son. God the Son, everything for the Father. Now get this. This is all to the glory of God the Father and God the Son. And the Holy Spirit revealing all these things takes credit for nothing. Even though he is no less involved in all of it. Do you see the humility of God here? Do you see in the Trinity there's something that doesn't exist in men? We take all the glory to ourselves all the time for everything. We don't deserve glory for anything. You know, we're the branch, God is the, the, the vine. Without him, we can do nothing. But we take credit for everything. He doesn't take credit for anything. I mean, in the persons of the Trinity. It's God the Father for God the Son. It's God the Son for God the Father. And it's the Holy Spirit for both. And each one equally God. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. And God wants that for us. You hear that? God wants that character for us. Where do we see anything like this in the activities of man on earth? I'm not even going to take the time to go into it. I mean, we just love to glorify ourselves. Statutes, monuments, all of it. Having first considered God, let us secondly consider God's plan for men. Ephesians 5.1 
Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Imitators of God. Why? As beloved children. That's what he makes us. And verse 2, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Let us remember that before man comes into view, that God the Father planned the exaltation of the Son as the Son's sacrifice to fulfill the will of the Father. The Holy Spirit labored alongside inspiring the men who would write and thereby glorify the Father and the Son. Therefore, there is a purpose. On the other side of all this chaos of this world, God is reproducing himself in those chosen to eternal life. At least, let us fulfill what God has chosen. Verse 3, but sexual immorality, and this is all from Ephesians chapter 5, but sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be mentioned among you as is proper among saints. Now, does that command sound like the church today? You go to church? Or is the church today nothing but excuses? Well, we're not perfect. This is what some will say. Um, We're not perfect, and that's certainly true. But where are the exhortations as we could say it as it's said in Scripture? Sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be mentioned. We're not talking about doing it. We're talking about like not even talking about it. just It's not part of who we are. It's nothing to talk about because it's not part of us. That's what he's saying here. Among you as is proper among saints. It's not proper to even talk about these things. I think we might be selling God a little short as to what he can do in his beloved saints. As we conclude chapter 5 of Ephesians, we read this. And that don't, don't, let's not gross over that concept too quickly of what God came to die for and was raised from the dead to impart, and that is a holy living. Holy living is something that should be prominent in the saints, not imperfections of sin. We're not perfect. But there's one thing to not be perfect, and it's another thing to be slaves to sin. In chapter 5 of Ephesians, verses 28 to 33, we read this. What is in it? The focus here, again, is what God is doing in men. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Now, as people who go off the rails and are self-destructive, we realize that. But a, 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 a person who's not self-destructive lives to take care of himself, cleans up, eats, does exercises, you know that. And, and continuing in the quote, because we are parts of his body. So just as Christ also does the church, what's he do? He cares for his body. We are to care for his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
So he's talking about marriage, and he, he takes the marriage quote uh, and places it right here in Ephesians chapter 5. He went back to uh, uh, the second chapter of Genesis, and then in verse 32 of Ephesians 5, this, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, as you as for you individually, each husband is to love his own wife the same, same as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, he uses the word mystery. Mystery in the Bible is uh, the secret counsel of God in his dealings with the righteous, which are hidden from ungodly and wicked men, but are made plain to the godly at the proper time. In the Old Testament, we're given multitude of prophecies of the Messiah, but they are but a shadow of things to come in the Old Testament. But then in the New Testament, as we see Christ as the very substance of those prophecies, they come into clear light and full living color, where they were just a shadow, but they're present and powerful and clear in the Old Testament, just written as a mystery until God would reveal them to people whose eyes are usually closed or blind. Now it's said it's a great mystery. And the word great is referring to things esteemed highly for their importance. Get that? It's a mystery, a shadow in the Old Testament revealed in the New to God's people. But it's a great mystery, which is something, it refers to something that's esteemed highly for its importance. Now, there are no spiritual truths that are plainer and at the same time better hidden than those in the, in the institution of marriage. Why do I say that? Well, since Adam and Eve, men and women have been bound together in holy wedlock, formed new families, shared their lives together, dreams, goals, children. In short, they have walked through life together. The Bible says it this way, and the two shall become one flesh. In this one flesh relationship, where two people share one life, God is, has hidden and revealed his plan for eternity. That is, that God would become one with his people. What's the plan for eternity? That God would become one with his people. In a one flesh relationship. It is this one flesh relationship, the creature, one with the creator, that is God's plan for eternity. So now let us go back to Genesis 2, 22 to 24, where this is originally comes from, from which the apostle is quoting, quote, And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Then the man said, I think this is important, then the man, this is coming from Adam, said, At last this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. Why at last? Well, he named all the animals and he was depressed because he didn't find someone suitable for him, something suitable for him. And then continuing the quote, because she was taken out of man. So he's saying, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Why? Because she was taken out of him. He knew that. God put a deep sleep over him, but he knew what happened. 
For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So there's one that becomes two, and the two become one again. And from that becomes a family. The two come back together, and you have new life. Another person is born. Something new. Just like in 1 Corinthians where it says, we're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Old things are becoming new. Something new is happening. So Christ is joined with us, and in that identification as found in Romans chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, in that identification, there's a new man. It's not the old man running around and struggling one nature with another nature. You know, all of that is wrong. And I can't take the time to go into this here. But in identification, that old man is put to death and something knows has been created. Is there sin that clings to us like, like smell on a sweaty animal? Yes, absolutely. But we are a new person in Christ. And we need to recognize this. And in that recognition, believe me, there is power to live a godly life when it's really accepted, received the way it's meant to by the Spirit of the living God. Now that is why Paul states it this way, quoting from Genesis 2, for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. This is really important. But I'm speaking, Paul says, with reference to Christ and the church. The relationship of a man and a woman in marriage is so intertwined with the relationship that God has planned with his chosen people that Paul has to say, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. He's focusing on a marriage of man and woman, but there's something deeper behind this thing. In other words, Paul says, I'm quoting an Old Testament passage from Genesis 2 referring to marriage of man and woman but I'm referring to Christ and the church. It's a picture. It's a metaphor. It's, it's, it's not uh, an allegory. It's a metaphor. In the marriage institution, instituted by God for reason, a reason, to illustrate what? The church. We see the church in the New Testament. We see the marriage of the Lamb in... Uh, in Re- at the end of Revelations in 18. And there, there we, we see this, this what planned for the ages. What is the reason a man is joined to his wife? Answer, to reflect God's plan for eternity. In time as a man and a woman are wed and experience something of a holy union, they reflect what God has planned in eternity. That is, God and man in holy union. So that Man can experience the fullness of God. In fact, this one flesh relationship is stated all through the letter of the, into the Ephesians. In 123, the church, quote, the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fulfills all in all. The church which is his body, that's Christ, the fullness of him, that's Christ, who fills all in all. It's, it's the filling. What? God's presence filling the church, each individual stone that makes up this building. In 2.14, we are told that Christ, quote, who is our peace, has made both groups, that is Jew and Gentile, what? Into one. Two 
into one. And for what reason? Verse 22, quote, In whom you also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit, in 319, a dwelling of God in the Spirit built together. In 319, we are, quote, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God, end quote. You see, this fullness, fullness is the joining of us, the tabernacle as individuals, with the fullness of God. So each part making up the entire body, the bride of Christ, is filled with the fullness of God. This is two in one. Us and God in one. Chapter 4, we're taught in verse 15, quote, practicing the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Christ. Him and us, us and him, two made one. This is not brain surgery. This is very clearly stated what the purpose is. It's the channel. It's uh, the pipe through which the river of God flows. We're the channel. He's the life. We're the branch. He's the vine. It's all about God being pleased, which he can't be pleased with anything but himself. And that's the only thing that makes sense. What, what are we? Dust? We're made from dust, but we're meant to be filled with the presence of God. So throughout the entire letter, Paul is teaching about a one flesh relationship so that God's people might experience the fullness of God. The fullness of God. Think of it. The creature becomes united with the creator. The mortal becomes one with the immortal. The finite gets to share eternity with the infinite one. That is, the one that is infinite in every way shares all things with those who are finite in every way. And the sinner gets to share glory with the Holy One. Beloved and anyone present who is outside of Christ, let us consider how great this love and grace of God is when this union has been planned for enemies and rebels to God. The substitutionary death of Christ accomplishes first the forgiveness of sins, second, identification of the sinner with the Savior in a holy union between men and Almighty God in a one flesh relationship. This is great. I mean, this is beyond comprehension. It's important. Three days after Christ's death, he rose from the dead by the power of his holy life, which life is imparted to everyone who repents and believes the gospel. And that repents and that believes is all the work of God. Third, sinners are adopted into the divine family, the family of God. Understand, this is not church life as it's become in the last 150 years. Church life, actually, Ian Bounds was talking about it in the late 1800s, that it had already become so dull, so, so misplaced, so misunderstood, so soiled with sin, 
You know, Christianity is about transformation. It's about God taking a sinner and turning that sinner into something else. That was the measure of Christianity once upon a time. People weren't really acknowledged and brought into the church unless a transformation could be observed. How they pray, how they view life, how they talk about God and the scriptures, how they act, you know, how, what their attitude projected. And that, that, that kind of transformation actually affects one another to live a holy and godly life. But the standard has been dropped, you know, to the, to the bottom in, in, in the church. I'm not going to speak about all the world. And, and certainly, you know, but, but, but ask yourself while you listen to this. And then you may think the world of your church and your pastor and the people. And you should, you know, glory in what God is doing. But is it really that we are so holy, so set on being good, kind of that picture you get of the Puritans who, according to great historians of church history, would regard the Puritans as the, uh, you know, the oaks, you know, the, the giant redwoods, the, you know, the, the, the really tall trees, you know, that are just rooted and grounded together in unity and love and just project a holiness in everything they do and everything they think. Are we that kind of a church? Or are we a church of people that says we're saved by grace and it doesn't matter if you live like the devil all your life? I mean, is, is that it? Is that love? Is that, is that the transforming part of power of God that actually turns sinners into actual saints? You know, or is it the grace is so great that no matter how you live your life, it doesn't matter? I mean, is that the love of God? that just allows us to be enslaved to sin all of our lives and doesn't care about a union where he's present and represented to the world? I mean, think about it. And this mystery that was hidden in marriage was revealed through the church. Colossians 1.25 of this church, I was made a minister, Paul said, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery, among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. When Christ is in us in fullness, are we more sinner than saint or are we more saint than sinner? When Christ is in us in fullness, when we're filled with the Spirit, which we're commanded to do, by the way. Be not drunk with wine, we're in his excess, Ephesians chapter 5, 13, but be filled with the spirit. One time my, my son had gone through a really hard time. He broke up with a, a, a girlfriend that he had and we're standing there and you know he was a mess for like three days and then he really started to walk in the spirit. He really started to understand the scriptures. He really started to worship. He came home one day and he's standing there and, he, and he's standing by his room and he said, Dad, come here, I got to show you something. And so he opens the scriptures and he reads from uh, Revelations 1.8, I believe it is, and it said, you know, uh, to him who is and who was and who is to come. He said, wait, wait, stop, stop, read that again. And so I read, to him who is. And he said, I've been standing here for 15 minutes trying to figure out who he, he is, is what? And all I can come to is that God is. He was worshiping. And then a couple of weeks later in the kitchen, we usually playing got cards back then, and uh, he started to say, you know, I figured out uh, what happened to me. 
And I, and I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, you know, he was in the navigators that was in the church and, you know, uh, there a lot of scriptures being used and just pouring over them and thinking about them all the time and memorizing scripture. And, and he said, you know, when his girlfriend when it was in his life, and they weren't doing anything wrong, and, and you know, while, while he, his girlfriend was in his life, before they broke up, you know, it was all about the girlfriend, and the, the girlfriend became an idol, and it was filling his life. And he said to me, it's like, you know, having a cup, and it was filled with a balloon, and the water was pouring in, wasn't going in because it was just falling over the sides because of the balloon. And then when God took her away, it was like the balloon being popped, and the water just filled the glass. And you know, that's a perfect picture of what worldliness is. People just win the world, and it's all about the world, it's all about things, it's all about money, it's all about careers, it's all about health, it's all about, all about, all about me and I and I, and there's no Christ, and there's no fullness. We talk about it, and, but then we have to say, you know, filled with guilt, because we know how much it, it's replacing Christ in our hearts, and therefore, you know, but God loves sinners, and, you know, we can live like the devil and say things like that when we're meant to be filled with the Holy Spirit most of the time. So as we're winding this down, I want to think about John chapter 17 where we're given Jesus' high priestly prayer. And he starts out there by defining eternal life, and he says, this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. That in the beginning, God is eternal life. And that eternal life is meant to fill our souls. And then towards the end, right at the end of his praying, he says this, quote, 22 and 23, the glory which you have given me, I also have given to them, so that they may be one just as we are one. He's talking to the Father. And he's saying that this glory you, God the Father, gave to me, God the Son, I've given to them. Why? So that we, they can be one just as we are. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. The whole chapter is about unity. There's no God presence without unity. And in the, in the context in which we've been talking about in this message and in this chapter now, coming out of Ephesians chapter, well, Ephesians, this unity is attached to the unity between God and us. And in this context of this fullness of God and this unity that's so important, union between us and God, and God, the union between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and us placed in there, in that context, he says these words, so that the world may know that you sent me. And, this is a big and, and you love them just as you loved me. Let, me. let me read that again. And you love them just as you loved me. Now one time, long time ago, I, I'm considering this, I'm thinking, well, what does that mean exactly, that you love them just as you love me? This is the Son, the eternal Son of God speaking. 
How does God love the eternal Son? Well, He loves the, the eternal Son like He loves Himself because the eternal Son is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, hates anything evil, sinful, wicked, wretched, hates it with a holy, infinite hatred. Well, how does He love us like that when that's not us? I mean, we've fallen into sin. Well, you're saved, that's right. We're saved and forgiven. But there's no inerrant, inherent sinlessness in us. We're made holy. He loves the Son because the Son is inherently holy. He loves the Son because the Son in, in and of himself is holy. We're not that way. The statement here is, you love the Son just as you love me. You see, this has absolutely no meaning whatsoever apart from identification. Did you hear that? Apart from identification, this has no meaning. What's identification? That we are so placed into the Son of God that we're dissolved away. You know, the pearly gates. The the pearl comes from an oyster, and the oyster secretes an ear... Uh, uh, the substance that covers up an irritation which eventually dissolves the irritation so it doesn't exist and all you have is this perfect pearl made of a substance that covered something that was an irritation. That's a nice way of saying the sin that we possess, that we create in our own hearts out of this pride that that becomes what we are is replaced completely with Christ in glory, in eternity, so that the love with which Christ was loved, we will be loved. This is absolutely off the charts. Out there in a a field we can't comprehend that we should be loved that way. And that's verse 23. In verse 26, he goes on, he says this again, I have made your name known to them. Everything that's contained in who God is is contained in his name, in his names. He's making the name known. He's made it known to the apostles. He makes it known to everyone who believes and will make it known, that's us, so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Now this goes from love them as you loved me to that love which you loved me may be in them. So this is not just his love on us. This is his love in us. And when that love is in us to the fullness as it will be throughout eternity, sin will be washed away. Sin not only washed away, done away. And it starts here and now, by the way. So that we love God and we live righteous lives out of that love. Don't sell God short. Because we always come up short. Don't sell God short because we fail. Start selling. You can sell yourself short all you want. Stop if you're doing it. Stop selling God short. You can live a far more holy life than you can imagine. And I know that we see our sins even greater the longer we mature and we become adults in the faith. But this, I'm not talking about us now. I'm talking about God. I'm talking about us not selling God short. You know, a sweet meditation on the love of God for sinners 
is what we've been talking about. And you love them just as you love me, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. That's a sweet meditation. To partake of God's love, His grace, His mercy, His righteousness, His holiness, is to know God. What is eternal life? That they might know you, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's about knowing God. So back in the 70s, I went to Bible Institute. And at that Bible Institute, before I left, I think it was the last year, I'm not sure, I met uh, a person who was a former student at that institute. in an institute where retired missionaries did a lot of the teaching. And uh, not all, but some. And, and in that institute, I met this person, and he was a great magician. He really was kind of a... Uh, a neat individual, and um, he he told me a story. And in the story, he uh, was attending school, and he made friends with a big old guy, must have been like six five, three hundred pounds, and uh, and and he, but a, a fun loving, just lovable kind of a guy. And he was a prankster, the guy that I'm talking about. And he would do it, all kinds of things, like you know pails of water when you're walking in a room and all kinds of stuff. But he liked to sneak up on his friend George and slap him on the back. And George would all get kind of debobbing, you know, uh, kind of crazy. Um, not crazy, but, uh, you know, kind of discombobulated, whatever that word is. Can't think of it right now. It's been a long day. And, uh, <laughs> and he would, you know, turn around and throw his arms around uh, this guy that I'm talking about, forget his name to tell you the truth, and love on him, and they were, they were just good friends. He did that all the time. Well, this one time, he saw George across the street, and he goes sneaking across the street, and he just lays this slap on his back, you know, and this guy kind of turns his head, and it wasn't George. A big old guy, you know, and the big old guy looked down at, at him, and he said, I don't know you. To which he turned and looked at him and he said, well, I don't know you either. And then he kind of made a quick retreat and explained why he did what he did. And his friend George was this great guy and he liked to, to play that joke on him. And, and this guy too had understood and, you know, he kind of went his way. And, and after he went his way, the guy that I came to know, you know, he just basically ran home as fast as he could, got in his house, shut the door and just said to himself, I will never do that again. He learned a, a lesson about sneaking up and, on people and, and playing a practical joke, at least in that way. You know, there are people, and have been people since, since Adam and Eve, people upon people, probably as much as 20 billion, I've heard said estimates, just prior to the flood, and then from the flood till now, there's been, well, we're at about 8 billion people. The majority of those didn't, didn't reach a billion until 1900. But, you know, it just keeps growing. You know, we're headed towards another 20 billion, at least going to reach 10 within a short time. And then there's the millennial reign, and there'll be, you know, who knows how many billions during, during that time. Well, I bring all of those numbers up. Because the, the four most horrible words 
that will ever be stated are these. I never knew you. Think about it. You know, narrow is the way that leads to destruction, and many go in that way. Broad is the way. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many go in that way. Narrow is the path. Straight is the way that leads to eternal life. Few there be that find that. Many, as they go through life, they go through it blind, proud, sinful. We all begin that way. But many will hear those words, I never knew you. On the brink of all eternity, when nothing is going to change this now, at the point a person hears Jesus say to them, I never knew you. In that moment, eternity, eternity, we're talking about no ending, never, ever ending. At that moment in time, to hear the words, I never knew you. There's nothing worse than this. Nothing comes close to this. Nothing at all. To miss knowing God is to, is to miss the eternal plan. To miss eternal joy and glory. It is to miss being at the center of God's love and to instead be cast out into eternal darkness and into eternal torment. Why? Because of pride. Why do people go to eternity and go to hell for eternity? I've said this before. I mean, a billion years in, you would think a man would say, I've had enough. I can't take this anymore. I have to, I have to leave this. You know, I'm sorry for my sin. I, I, I'm just, I can't do this anymore. Lord, just change me. You know, the sinner's prayer. Lord, I'm evil. I'm wicked. You know, I just give my sins up. Come into my life and save me. That'll never be said for all eternity, for all the people there. There's no place for it. They're cast into the lake of fire, which lasts forever and ever. Forever. There's no other way to understand forever. And people can change it. They can figure ways out of it. That's what the Bible says, and that's what God means. Don't make that choice if you listen to this. Don't miss the glory of God and being one with that glory. Don't miss the forgiveness of sins. And don't miss, most importantly, the transformation of being made into the very glory of God, which only He can accomplish. If you think this is hinging on your decision, it's not. It's, this, it's hinging on the power of God. Don't sell God short. Cry out to God. Ask God by his power of his resurrection. God save me. If you're a Christian, don't miss out on it right now by thinking because you fall short, that you have to continue to fall short, really short, if that's where you are. You don't. You don't. All you have to do 
is see the blood on the cross. You have to see the sufferings of Christ. You have to understand the depth of God's love to send the Son, even though he did it for his glory, but to send the Son for our redemption, our salvation. It's a love that's incomprehensible because God had to do what only he can do, and that was to reach into that eternity, to save us from that eternal punishment. Go with the glory. Go with the saving knowledge of God. Go with the love and infinite love of God's saving power. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this truth that your God, that your your word declares. That you are a God who has planned to join yourself to sinners to their salvation. We know, Lord, that we could never do this. There's absolutely no such thing as an ultimately free will that places a God-likeness in us to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It just doesn't exist. Ultimate freedom belongs to the ultimate being, and there's only one God in the universe, and that's you. In the person of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we give you the praise and the honor and the glory for it belongs to only one person. That's you. And I, I thank you for these things. And I, and I pray that those who hear this might receive it into their hearts, might receive Christ to the saving of their soul, or becoming more mature in Christ and not selling you short in what the death and the resurrection and the filling of the Spirit can accomplish. I ask these things for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.